I'll be reading from Acts 18 this morning, beginning in verse 1. Acts 18, 1. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I shall go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain name, man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. I'll pray. God, we thank you that um, you love us and you know us. We thank you that you are the giver and sustainer of life. And you are, God, our very strength. You yourself are our joy. You are our, our perseverance. You are the grace, God, that we need for living life. Thank you for these words that you've recorded for us. I pray that you would use them, God, to strengthen us in our faith, that we might walk with you in steadfastness and perseverance. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as you've been, as you're aware, we've been looking at the life of Paul. He's on his second missionary journey. And I don't know that he knows it, but at this point when he comes to Corinth, he's near the end of that second missionary journey. On his first missionary journey, he suffered quite a bit, and um, at one point was even stoned and left for dead. It was a very difficult, um, trying time in his life. On the second missionary journey, he makes his way to Macedonia, and he is thrown into jail in Philippi. And then he is persecuted in Thessalonica, goes down to Berea, persecuted again, makes his way to Athens, and he is laughed at and scorned. And now he comes to Corinth, and he's alone. And he is very fearful. There's no indication of being fearful in this passage until we get down to where Jesus says, do not be afraid any longer. And I really um, have to confess to you, I, I very much appreciate this portion of Scripture. Because if it wasn't for this and what we have revealed to us in, in 1 Corinthians, we probably would be of the opinion that Paul never had a bad day. He just went from triumph from triumph, victory to victory, always encouraged, always encouraging others, and nothing could be further from the truth. Paul had some very bad days. Times when he was sorely tempted just to throw in the towel and walk away. When he gets to Corinth, um, it is a major city 
200,000 people in the ancient city of Corinth. It had two seaports separated by three and a half miles of land on a narrow isthmus. Um, And so it was a heavily um, commercialized city. Very vile, very wicked, lots of immorality. If you went down the road of immorality, people at this time would say that you've been Corinthianized. You've become like the Corinthians. And in this church, in this city, Paul will stay a year and a half and see many people come to know the Lord. We have First and Second Corinthians as a result of the church that comes into being in this city. But when he comes, he is alone, and he is fearful and weak. How do we know that? Because of what Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I just want at the outset here of, of this sermon, um, look at some of these passages from 1 and 2 Corinthians where Paul describes what his condition was when he came to, to Corinthian, to the Corinthian people and other times in his ministry. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And this is the key verse, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. When we go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul elaborates even further and he says in verse 8, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. This would have been on his first missionary journey. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. That's Paul talking. We were so low, so discouraged, that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. We also see in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In chapter 6, again, Paul says in verse 4, In everything commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, all of these things Paul had endured. When we go over to chapter 11, probably one of the most famous chapters of what Paul wrote, beginning in verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if if insane. I am more so. 
in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. You think your life is hard. Wow. I think my life is hard sometimes until I go back and read what Paul went through. And you may not realize this, but the scripture has more than a little bit to say about perseverance. And Paul is in, in the need at this time when he comes to Corinth of persevering. He's at his end. He is there in weakness and in trembling. He's still preaching. He's still making his way through the city. He's still going to the synagogues. But he's scared. So much so that Jesus needs to appear to him and encourage him. Now that's pretty low. Where you are so done that Jesus himself appears in a vision and says it's going to be okay. I've never been that done. (laughs) Jesus has never appeared to me in a vision and said it's going to be okay. But that's how far done Paul was. Couldn't take another day. Perseverance, steadfastness, endurance, they are major themes in Scripture. Major themes. I don't know why. My guess is because our God is a God who is faithful. And He is steadfast in His love for us. He does not give up. He continues to love us. He endures, he perseveres in his commitment to you and me. And aren't we thankful? But how can we walk with a God who is steadfast and not learn to be steadfast ourselves? My mom used to tell us, as well as my dad, that we needed to develop character. And character comes through hard work. And so I knew they both spoke from, a, from a, um, personal experience. My mom um, grew up on a dairy farm. She was very thankful that she was still a young girl when they sold the dairy <laughs> and um, started having a relatively normal life. But her dad um, and older siblings milked 100 cows every day, twice a day, by hand. Can you imagine? They had 12 kids. Um, Six of those 12 kids died before they were 12 years old. It's a very, very hard life. They had to deliver all that milk, so they had to put it in sterilized bottles that they sterilized. The boys would milk and then deliver the milk in the morning and then pick up the empty milk bottles in the afternoon and start all over again way before sunup the next day. Very, very hard life. 
It was so hard that two of my uncles, when they went off to World War II and they were in basic training, that um, they told me, one of the uncles told me, he says, Charlie, we, we'd go in the barracks and lights would be off and there'd be 40 men in the barracks and all you could hear all through the barracks were these young men crying themselves to sleep. And my brother and I were looking at each other saying, this is like a church social. We've never had it so good. A hard life is, is very, very relative. I found myself quitting at a lot of things when I was um, a kid. I quit piano lessons um, as quickly as I could because I couldn't imagine John Wayne playing the piano. My dad made me sign up for Boy Scouts and made me commit to one year, and I maybe made it to one year in one day. I could not wait to get out of Boy Scouts. But I was in junior high when I realized that I was developing um, bad character, and I was beginning to take the scriptures to heart that says tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character a hope that does not disappoint from Romans chapter 5. And I was honest enough, listening to the Lord, I knew that I was developing some bad character. And so God, in my coming to him and saying, Lord, I, I, I don't want to be a person of bad character. I want to be a person of good character. God took me at my word. And when I was 17, he gave me a job that was very, very hard summer job putting up metal buildings down in Corpus Christi. I knew it was an answer to prayer, and I was exactly where God wanted to be. There was a recession going on that year. Didn't even know what a recession was at 17, but I knew I couldn't find a job. I'd gone all over Corpus Christi, going to every business I could think of, looking for a job. Nobody was hiring. So I said, okay, God, I've done everything I can. Um, If you want me to work this summer, you're going to have to get me a job because I'm out of ideas. Otherwise, I'm going to assume that it's okay to spend the summer on the beach. And I'm kind of looking forward to that possibility. Well, that weekend, somebody called me up that I'd never heard of. And he said, I heard you're looking for a job. And I said, yes, sir. And he gave me the address, and he said, show up Sunday mor- um, Monday morning. I think it was 7 o'clock in the morning. Wow, that never happens. So I showed up, and it was a hard job. The work itself was very, very hard. The men I worked with were very, very difficult. As I signed the first day my employment papers, the W-4 forms or whatever, W-2, I forget what they're called, my superintendent, a former Marine, popped open his briefcase to get me the papers that I needed to sign, and he had a pistol that filled up the whole briefcase. Biggest pistol I'd ever seen in my life. And I'm going, and I, he sees me just staring at the thing, and, he, and he's, he goes, you need to know something. These are really, really rough men, and this pistol is for me to defend myself against them. I fully expect someday I'm going to have to use it on one of them. You should be careful while you're working here. <laughs> and I knew God given, had given me this job, and I never told my dad when I was going through that summer. Because my dad would have said, quit. And I knew I couldn't quit. That God put me here. It's an answer to prayer. 
And God's wanting to develop perseverance in me. There were three other guys that hired on the same time I did. Two of them were football players at Cal Allen High School and rodeo um, stars. Tough as nails boys. And another one played football for A&M. Those three guys all quit within two weeks because those guys tried to do everything they could to get us to quit. I knew I couldn't quit. It was tough. We were ridiculed. We were put in dangerous positions. Um, I, saw, I, I saw all kinds of things happen there. They were violent men. Halfway through the summer, my immediate um, foreman had a brown belt in karate, mean as nails guy. Um, he decided that I'd messed up one too many times because I messed up all summer. He told me to get in the truck, and I knew if I got in the truck with him, he'd kill me. And there was one man working with me who had never stood up for me, and he knew what was going to happen, and he says, no, I need Charlie here. If he leaves, I can't, get, I can't fix the mess he's made. I need, I need his help to do this. And he saved my life. And at the end of the day, we had the three of us get back in the truck. I had to sit next to this guy in the cab, tried to make light of what I'd done, and he just glared at me and said, shut up. And he goes, if you'd gotten in the truck today when I told you to, I would have killed you. Okay. Don't think I'll say anything on the way home. By the end of the summer, my last day there, I pulled on to the job site, and that foreman was leaving as quickly as he could. I got out of my car. The other men were saying, man, Charlie, you just missed it. Missed what? You know that pistol the boss keeps in his briefcase? He pulled it out today. And he pointed it at that foreman and told him to get off the property or shoot him right there on the spot. I missed that. <laughs> and then the superintendent walked over to me. And I, uh-oh. And he says, it's your last day here. I said, yes, sir. And he goes, you've been great. And I made a lot of mistakes all summer long. I'd cost that man a lot of money. And he says, you've got a job here anytime you want it. Praise God. And then I took a part-time job my senior year in high school at a dairy company in Corpus where I had an uncle that worked at the main office down in Harlingen and Hygieia. And they had a, had a branch in Corpus, and I took a part-time job there. Working after school on the, during the week and all day on Saturday. And um, loved working there. But God wasn't done teaching me perseverance. They said, you know how to mow a lawn? Yeah. So I start mowing their lawns. Lawnmower breaks. No problem. You know what a yo-yo stick is? I know what yo-yos are. I know what sticks are. I never heard of a yo-yo stick. It's a swing blade. And they go, learn to mow with this. And I would mow that whole place and make it look like a golf course with a swing blade. They say, you know how to edge a sidewalk? Yeah, I've edged lots of sidewalks. Good. They didn't give me an edger. They gave me a shovel and said, start edging. Sidewalk is probably 300 yards long, both sides of it, and the street. They said, you know how to dig a hole? (laughs) I think I can dig a hole. They go, good. And they said, dig a hole right here, 10 feet deep. First, got to break the concrete. Jackhammer broke. They gave me a sledgehammer. 
eight inches of, eight inches of concrete. Dig this, break it through all the concrete, and they said there's a sewer pipe running through here, clay pipe, 10-inch pipe, full of sour milk. You don't want to break that pipe. There was a guy working with me that day. He broke the pipe. And we were only a foot down into the clay. Sour milk, orange curdled sour milk starts bubbling out of this pipe. I don't drink milk even when it's not sour. I hate milk. That guy quit right there on the spot. And I have to finish that hole 10 feet deep. And I dug and dug and dug for months. I show up, jump in the hole. Every night it would get filled up what I dug the day before would be filled up with sour milk because they're receiving milk trucks. And those milk trucks are being washed and, and this all of it junk is going right through that broken pipe into my hole. And now the hole's full of mosquitoes. So I'd have to kill all the mosquitoes, jump in the hole, get one five-gallon bucket of um, junk out. Got the hole started getting so deep that I'd have to jump in the hole and then make little holes steps along the side to find, get out and then pull the bucket out with a, with a rope. It took me months to dig that hole. Every single day. I was learning perseverance. When I finally left um, to go to his hill, it was a happy day. <laughs> when my bosses said to me, if you come back and, and work here, my one boss said, I'm pretty sure we could pay for you to go through college. And all I did was persevere by God's grace. And I tell you that because there's a different, those are all important lessons. And sometimes you think preachers have never done anything where they've had to work with their hands. I've worked with my hands. And, um, but I want to tell you, as much as physical perseverance is important, we love the Rudy stories. Rudy, Rudy, you know, four years of just being a punching bag, you know, in football, and he gets to play on the last game, the right at the end of the game. He persevered. We love the Rocky stories, right? Fifteen rounds of getting the stuffings beaten out of him, but he endures, perseveres to the end. Can't see, eyes are swollen shut, but he didn't quit. We love those stories. I'm beginning to see that it is harder to persevere the longer you've been at something. The first part of any difficult circumstance is hard. But sometimes the longer you've been at it, the easier it is to just say, enough is enough. Paul has been at this for a while now. He's been through a lot. And now he's at this point of just real temptation of saying, I can't go another day. I'm sure many of you have been there. And in God's mercy to him, it says in verse 2, he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor, was persecuting the Jews and drove them all out of Rome. And they happened to be not only fellow Jews, both persecuted, persecuted like Paul had been, but also of the same trade. 
What are the odds? All three of them were tent makers. Now, I just discovered recently that more literally, they were probably leather workers, which actually makes more sense to me because you can go to any city in the world and find a leather shop. With a city of 200,000 people, I can't imagine that tents were in high demand. Not in a, in, an, in a city that was as advanced as Corinth would have been. Leather working, that's easier to understand. But regardless, they, were all, they all had a trade and they had the same trade. And this had to be a tremendous blessing to Paul. We don't know whether Aquila and Priscilla were even saved at this point. Later they become saved. If maybe already they were, we don't know. But they were significant people in the life of Paul, lifelong friends. Paul will say of them later that they risked their lives for my sake. Good friends. They will go with Paul after a year and a half of being in Corinth. They will travel with him and go to Ephesus, and Paul will leave them in Ephesus. And then later we find out that they will host the church in Ephesus in their home. And then at some point after that, they leave Ephesus and they go back to Rome, where they originally were before this persecution started. And once again, they will host the church in their homes. It's a remarkable couple. And they just happened into Paul's life at the time when he was in most need of friends. It's hard to overestimate the importance of friends at all points in our life, but especially when we're really low. I have a friend who, his, he believes that God has given him a ministry to pastors. And I believe he's right. He is a loving, kind, wise man. And there are so many pastors that he just gets with for the sole purpose of encouraging them. What a blessing that man is. Because so many men, like Paul, what they really need is just a friend. Just a friend. Nobody is asking for anything, wanting anything, just wants to offer friendship. And that's what God provided for Paul here through these two dear people. He was still going about his ministry of attending the synagogues and reasoning with people every Sabbath trying to persuade Jew and Greek, it says in verse 4, to believe. Not arguing, not um, engaging in philosophy, um, but with the Scriptures, because they knew the Scriptures, just starting from Scripture and says, look at what the Bible says about Jesus, His suffering and His resurrection. And then Silas and Timothy showed up. And at that point, he was able to stop working in his trade, so we assume that Silas and Timothy came with money, probably from the Macedonian churches. And that allowed Paul to devote his time fully to ministry. It's been said there are three ways that a, that a person in ministry can be supported. One is by working, and that's what he was doing here in Corinth. Another is by those that he is ministering to, supporting him. And a third is by others supporting him, not those that he is directly ministering to. Of those three options, Paul followed the first and third. He worked, he let others support him, but he never took a dime from the people that he was directly ministering to. 
Could have. He taught the churches, support those who are ministering to you. But Paul felt like that he could not exercise his own rights when it came to that. So he worked. He took money from others that he was not directly ministering to, but he did not take money from those that he was directly ministering to. You know how many people it takes, by the way, to support a person for full-time ministry? Ten. If every person were to tithe, all it would take to support one person in full-time ministry would be ten people. If every person tithed. So a church could, could reasonably, with only ten wage earners, have a full-time pastor. I know churches much, much larger than that that can't support a full-time pastor. Can't or won't. By the way, I'm not talking about myself. Not by any stretch. And then it says that, amazingly, um, the leader of the synagogue will come to faith in Christ. But not before the Jews in this synagogue said, no more, get out of here. And so Paul complied. He says in verse 6, they resisted and they blasphemed and he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. Now that's a powerful statement. Not sure that we understand all that it means. But can you imagine Somebody's saying to you, I'm done with you. Your blood be on your own head. I am finished. I have told you everything that I can tell you. And that's what Paul says. We don't know exactly where he was coming from with that, but probably he is making reference to the book of Ezekiel when twice in chapter 3 and in chapter 33 Ezekiel is told by God, I have made you a watchman to the people. And the watchman on the wall, if if there's an invading army, and that watchman sees the army come and he does not blow the horn, then then the watchman is held responsible. The people's blood will be on his head if he does not blow the horn. But if the watchman sees the invasion coming and he blows the horn and the people in the city do nothing, then their blood is on their own heads. Seems to be that may have been what Paul had in mind when he says, your blood is on your own heads. It's not on me. Now, the difficulty with that is the Lord knows who is going to be saved. He says that coming up. So if the Lord knows who's going to be saved, then how would the preacher, the evangelist, have blood on his hands if he doesn't tell others how to be saved. That's a conundrum that I don't think any of us are going to solve. But it tells me, and I want to be be careful here because, again, I don't have the answer on it. I've often asked the question, if God only uses human agency to bring people to faith in Christ. And that is what Scripture says. Romans chapter 10, how shall they hear unless someone tells them? God knows who's going to believe, and God uses human agency for people to get saved. So if the people that the human agency, the evangelist, the preacher, the Christian, does not share his faith, 
Will those people still come to faith in Christ? Well, I could go to Esther, where Mordecai said to Esther, if you don't say something, then God will raise up somebody else who does. Well, that's good. But I don't know that I can, can, that answers the question. Maybe it does. I'd like to think that, that if I am not faithful to share Christ with someone who needs to hear about Christ, that God will raise up somebody who will be faithful when I'm unfaithful. I want to believe that. Because I know God loves people more than I do. And if he gave his son for them, to die for them, then God will get the word to those who are willing to respond. But I don't know that that fully answers what Paul is saying. The blood is either on our hands because we did not speak, or on their heads because they heard and did not respond. I can think of two instances more clearly than any other where I had a clear, open door by God to speak to someone about Christ, and I didn't. One was a friend of mine from elementary school, and he and I were in the same sixth grade class. Nice boy. I skipped school that year, and he turned me in. One of my buddies. And the teacher's going, where's Charlie? And my friend, and just integrity, not really wanting to get me in trouble, but he just spoke up and said, Charlie, skipping school today. Well, I got in a lot of trouble. And when I got back to school and I was standing in that classroom, all the boys in the classroom huddled around me. And they said, Charlie, just give the word. And we'll take care of this for you. And that boy is standing over in the classroom, cowering like a sheep. And I'm looking through the crowd of boys, and I see him, and I see these guys saying, we'll, we'll, we'll fix this for you. And I said, no, don't hurt him. He never forgot that. And I didn't have any more contact with him all through junior high, all through high school. I'd see him here and there, but, you know, we just, we'd say hi. That was about it. After I went to junior college in Corpus, I'd been gone from Corpus a year, moved back to Corpus and I'm walking across the college campus, and I see this same guy from the sixth grade sitting under a tree on the grass there on the lawn of that campus. And he saw me, and he just lit up, Charlie! And I said, hey! And I kept going. And the whole time I'm walking away from him, I knew God was saying, stop, 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 go back and talk to that guy. Because I knew that guy's heart was open to me because he owed me from back in the sixth grade. I didn't go. I disobeyed God. The next day, another college student walked up to me. I didn't even know that he knew that I knew that guy. He said, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? I said, no. He said, he went home last night and shot himself. And killed himself. And I have thought all through the years, I have blood on my hands. Because I had an opportunity 
to talk to a young man that I know was his heart, if not open to God, was open to me. And I could have shared with him. And I did not. A few years ago, I sat next to a man who was a Korean War and Vietnam War veteran, old fellow. Had his veteran's baseball hat on. And somebody from first class told the flight attendant to offer him his seat. And he was wanting to give, that, give up his seat in first class for this fellow to take his seat. And he said, no, thank you. And so the flight attendant came back with, with drinks for him. He says, well, the guy in first class wants to buy you a drink. And he thanked him. So I got to asking him about his, his war history. Amazing guy. True hero. And then he said to me, all I've seen, all I've lived through, I have no idea why I'm still alive and why God allowed me to live. Is that not an open door to share the gospel? I said nothing to that man. And I'm sure that man's not still alive. And once again, I feel that I have blood on my hands. So I am not positive that God will raise up somebody else to speak if we don't. Because the language of blood on our hands is so strong. Maybe there is no one else if we don't take the opportunity God's given. Maybe I'm just looking for a way out when I say surely God will use somebody else. Why is there blood on our hands? if God just raises up somebody else. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, comes to faith in Christ and his whole household. And then, verse 9, the Lord said to Paul in the night by vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. See, the pattern has been that Paul would go to a city witness for a while, people would come to faith in Christ, and then boom, here comes the persecution. So Paul's been in Corinth for a while. He's been witnessing. People are getting saved. So now he's thinking, now the trouble comes. And he was genuinely terrified. I was with you in weakness and in trembling. And the Lord said to him in a vision, do not be afraid any longer. So clearly he's been afraid for the whole time. But go on speaking and do not be silent. So in the midst of the fear, Paul was still evangelizing. I'm impressed by that. So fear and faith are not necessarily opposites. You can exercise faith in the midst of fear. Faith does not necessarily take away our fear. Paul had been afraid. And while being afraid, he was speaking, witnessing. And now Jesus comes to him personally and says, you can stop being afraid. Nothing's going to happen to you in this city. I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God. 
You know what kind of people the many people were? Got to love it. The kind of people God loves to save. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. The Corinthian church had some characters in it kind of people God loves to save. I have many people in this city. I am with you and no one's going to harm you. And he settled down without fear. When you're going to persevere, personal strength is not enough. Our battle is against powers and spiritual forces of this darkness. Our enemy is greater than we are. Martin Luther sang about that, and a mighty fortress is our God. He said, a mighty foe we have. Our perseverance is not enough. Satan laughs at our perseverance. We are quitters by nature. We want to preserve our lives. We want to make our lives easy. We think about how to make life simple and safe, Everything in our life is focused on safety and keeping us safe, making sure that we don't get sick, making sure that we don't get hurt. Satan must laugh. And then the fire comes. How can we stand when we've spent a life trying to insulate ourselves from difficulty? Well, friends help. It's not enough. Personal ambition, personal drive is not enough. Good friends, not enough. Paul's got good friends in his life. It's not enough. Well, seeing people come to Christ, that's an encouragement. That'll make you persevere. Paul was seeing people come to faith in Christ. Not enough. You can be in a thriving ministry. People can be coming to Jesus left and right. You can have great friends who are standing with you. And it's not enough. We need Jesus. And friends and results, conversions, are not enough. The only one who can truly keep us strong, sustain us and strengthen us, is Jesus and His promise, His Word. When Paul was finishing up his letter to the Romans, another church that was going through lots of trial, he wrote to them and said, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of, of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. God gives perseverance and encouragement. Fruitful ministry is not enough. Friends are not enough. We need God. God gives 
encouragement, and perseverance. And he does so, verse 4 of Romans 15, through the scriptures. Because the scriptures are God's word to us. There have been so many times over the years where I've been close to just saying enough's enough. And God will use somebody or God will encourage me with seeing something happen that's exciting. But I can tell you nothing has sustained me like hearing from God through his word. Nothing. I need to hear from God. I need God to speak to my spirit like no one else can. And when God does, one small word can be so sustaining. I often say to our students, and I borrow this from Bill Bushhouse, because one year he said at the end of a Bible school year to our students, he says, I'm not a prophet, but I can tell you this. I can predict today who will do well and who won't in the years to come. Those who stay with God's people find a church and plug into it. And those who stay in God's word, he goes, I can guarantee you they will do well. And those that abandon one or the other or both will not finish well. We do not have the strength to be steadfast. We do not have the strength to persevere. Life is too hard. And we are so committed to our own comforts and security, it is much easier in the flesh just to quit and do something easier to find a safer place than it is to persevere. It is supernatural to persevere. When we have a supernatural enemy, it is supernatural to be able to continue on. And we can't persevere apart from what God wants to give us through himself, in his word. I can't stress enough how important it is. Stay in God's word, people. Read his word. Meditate on his word. I can't tell you how often, how long in a given day, but I can tell you the strength and the encouragement and the perseverance that God wants you to know comes through God's word. We need his people. We need the encouragement of seeing God active. But much more important than either of those two things is his word. He is the God of all perseverance and encouragement. And he gives us perseverance and encouragement through the scriptures. I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, I know there is no one in this room who hasn't at times been deeply discouraged. You know, God, that I am all too inclined toward it. It is, Lord, a tremendous weakness in my life to be easily discouraged. It is not in me to persevere. Lord, I don't believe it's in any of us. True perseverance, not just in body of being willing to endure hardship, but in our spirits, God, continuing to believe, continuing to be thankful, continuing to walk in your love and your grace. This kind of perseverance only comes from you, Lord. It is supernatural. I pray, God, that you would encourage and strengthen each of us 
through your word. That we would just hear from you, Jesus, what only you can say to bring us up out of the dust and make us stand on the solid rock of your person and your word. That when the storms come, that we would stand strong because our foundation is Jesus and his word. And the strength is not from us, but it is from you. We thank you, God, that you are so much greater than our enemy. And there is no battle that we're fighting that you are not, are not able to bring to a swift end. We know, God, that you could bring every trial to a swift end, but you don't because you're wanting to build in us perseverance, that that perseverance might produce character, and that character a hope which will not fail. So God, we want you to have your way. We give our amen, but we also confess, Jesus, we are not adequate for these things, and we need you, O God, to strengthen us, to keep us, to speak words of life and encouragement into our spirits so we might continue on with you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.